Welcome to the 148th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Susan Crandall, author of the novel Whistling Past the Graveyard. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Susan Crandall. Susan's latest novel, Whistling Past the Graveyard, has just been published. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's good to be here. Thanks. Well, I wonder if you could just read the first page or two of your new novel, Whistling Past the Graveyard. Sure, I would be happy to. Um, I I don't have a southern accent the way Starla does in my head, so you'll have to forgive me, um, but I'll do my best here. Sure. July 1963. My grandmother said she prays for me every day, which was funny because I'd only ever heard Mamie pray, Dear Lord, give me strength. And that sure sounded like a prayer for herself. And Mrs. Knopp in Sunday school always said our prayers should only ask for things for others. Once I made the mistake of saying that out loud to Mamie and got slapped into next Tuesday for my sassy mouth. My mouth always worked a whole lot faster than my good sense. Don't get the wrong idea. Mamie never put me in the emergency room like Talvich Metzger's dad did him. For sure, nobody believed the stories about about Talmadge being a klutz. Truth be told, Mamie didn't smack me as often as her face said she thought I needed it. So I reckon she could get credit for tolerance. I heard it often enough. I can be a trial. I was working real hard at stopping words that were better off swallowed, just like Mamie and my third grade teacher, Mrs. Jacoby, said I should. I got in trouble plenty at school for being mouthy, too. Most times I was provoked, but Principal Morris didn't seem to count that as an excuse. Keeping one's counsel was important for a lady in order to be an acceptable person in society. Not that Daddy and I thought I needed to become a lady, but it meant a lot to Mamie, so Daddy said I had to try. Anyway, I'd only been about half successful and been on restriction twice already since school let out at the end of May. Once for SAS. And the second time, well, I don't really count that as my fault. If it wasn't for a dang rotten board, it never would have happened. Out past the edge of town was a haunted house, a big square thing with porches up and down stairs. It had a strange room stacked on top that was most all of windows. That's where people saw the ghost lights on foggy nights. There wasn't a lick of paint left anywhere on that house, and the shutters had lost most all their teeth. Vines grew through the broken windows on the first floor, snaking around the inside and back up the fireplace chimney. It was hundreds and hundreds of years old, from back in the days of Big Cotton. I'd been there plenty of times, but I'd never seen a ghost, and I wanted to see a ghost almost as much as I wanted a record player. I figured my problem was I'd always been there in the daytime. What kind of ghost would be out in broad daylight? So I got me a plan. After Mamie went to bed, I snuck out, rode my bicycle out there to see my ghost, planning to be back in bed long before she woke up. I pedaled as fast as I could and had been all sweaty and out of breath and my legs almost too shaky to climb the front steps by the time I got there. I hadn't been inside that house more than a minute, not near long enough for a ghost to get interested in me, when I stepped on that rotten board. One leg shot through to the basement. I kicked and pushed and hollered, but there was no getting out. It was the middle of the morning the next day when the police found me. 
Mamie was madder than I'd ever seen her, and that's saying something. I got restriction and the belt and my bicycle taken away for the rest of the summer. It had been worth it if I'd seen my ghost. I reckon all my hollering and kicking had kept it away. So, Great. That's how Starla starts her adventure. And, and so how would you describe your new novel, Whistling Past the Graveyard? Um, it, it's a coming-of-age novel set in 1963 in Mississippi. So it has the backdrop of, of all the uh, civil rights issues that are going on at that time. And it's told entirely from this nine-year-old girl's point of view. And she is obviously fiery and misbehaves and can't control herself, but she's got a really good heart. And she's being raised by a, a grandmother who's not very happy about having to raise her. But this is her quest to find uh, a real sense of family and maternal love. And she goes on a road trip um, and she gets picked up by a, uh, a black woman who's got a white baby with her. And they travel to find Starla's mama in Nashville. Great. And do you remember how you originally got the idea for, for Starla and her story? Well, Starla kind of was bouncing around in the back of my head, talking in my ear when I was working on another book. And I, I kept putting her off because I don't leave projects unfinished. But this time, she, this character was so insistent that I finally thought I was just going to have to put the book I was working on away and start this and see where it went. And so, you know, that was that was where it began. And it was that first line in my head that um, that her my grandmother said she prays for me every day. And from there, I, I just let this story go where it would. And it turned out to be a m- much bigger book than I had anticipated. And and has that has that been the first time that you've done that, where you kind of got the idea and stopped one book to start writing another one? That is the very first time I have left a book unfinished. Yes, yes. I um, this is my tenth published novel, and I and I wrote five, co-authored with my sister uh, before that, and not one of them did I give up on before I was finished. But you know, it, this it was it felt right. It just it. It had to be written, and it had to be written now. And so have you subsequently gone back and finished the one you were working on? I have not. I have <laughs> not. Um, you know, I think that one, it was it was giving me trouble in the first place, and maybe Star was my excuse to put it away. Um, <laughs> I, I I am going on to write another book, but it's it's not that one I put away. Gotcha. So, so as you just mentioned, Whistling Past the Graveyard is not your first novel. Um, you've had nine previous novels published, and then the ones that you mentioned that you that you co-wrote. What what was your original path to publication for your first novel that was ever published? Have, have you always wanted to be a writer? What what was that journey like? Um, I've always been an avid reader. Loved loved reading. Loved words. Um, but I I did get pulled into writing a little bit um, by my sister. Um, I was a, a dental hygienist, and then I was a stay-at-home mom, and my sister has a very large imagination. She actually has a lot to do with Starla's personality in this book, um, as in I used my sister as a pattern with this fiery personality. And so um, she she came to me one day and said she'd been writing something. Would I look at it? Because she knew I was a big reader, and I, you know, and the older sister, so of course I had an opinion. 
And so we started working together and, and um, wrote several stories. And then uh, she quit writing and went on to uh, real estate. And uh, by then I was hooked. I, I just couldn't stop. So I kept writing and my first published novel was Backroads, and uh, it was the first one I wrote solo. So, and that was I, that one was published in 2003. I sold it to uh, Warner Books in 2001. Great, great. No, it, no, it, it writing surprised me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what is your writing process like? You, you, you mentioned earlier. I think that you said you kind of saw where whistling past the graveyard would take you in terms of the plot. Do you normally plot out your novels or do you, are you more of an organic writer? Absolutely organic. Um, all the work I do prior to actually sitting down to write the, the book is character development. Um, you know, getting basic conflicts set in my head, what they're going to be. And I have to write in a very linear fashion, and I have to have that first line in my head before I can even begin writing. So sometimes I wonder if I'm procrastinating. Oh, I don't have my first line yet. I can't start this book. But it usually works out pretty well if I wait for that because it usually sets me on the right path. But it's it's totally organic as I go. All Most of the secondary characters pop up as I'm writing. So if I had to outline, I'd never write another book. <laughs> So, as you mentioned, this is a coming of age novel, and your <clears throat> your uh, character Starla is nine years old. Was that an adjustment for you of writing from that point of view of a nine year old? Um, it it was and it wasn't because her voice in my head was so strong that you know that was definitely the storytelling voice for this story. I tried uh, sticking in some other points of view, and it was just jarring. So it was it was organic, as everything I do with my writing is, to use that voice. It made it easier in some aspects, and it made it more difficult because I had to choose. I had to, you know, I was filtered by exactly what she understood and to still be able to convey to the reader that she's misunderstanding and misinterpreting the world around her. Uh, I got myself in a couple of boxes, but I think I painted, painted my way back out, so I led the reader down the right path. Great. And and given your success to date with your writing, what, what advice would you offer for aspiring writers who would like to have their own stories or novels published? The best advice I can give you is to keep writing. You have to be persistent. It's very difficult to get a book published. It's very difficult to stay published once you do have a book published. So you have to love what you're doing and do it for the love of it. And um, But you can't give up either. And you always need to continue to grow and learn more about your craft. Um, I, a deadline is what pries a book out of my hands because I always think it can be better. I can go back. I can improve. I can sharpen. I can hone it just a little bit more. So... You know, you have to have that kind of a passion for creating this story. Um, so, you know, you have to feed that. You have to let that happen naturally and not let the world beat it out of you because it's 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 a difficult thing. And, you know, when you put your baby out there for reviews, it can sometimes be kind of painful. But you learn from every criticism you get. Great. And and is there anything that you've done over the years to, to kind of 
um, you know, to kind of keep going if you if you've gotten a a, a bad rejection or feedback. Uh, in the beginning, my my reaction to rejections from publishers was to send out three more query letters. I figured that was the most proactive way I could do anything um, because at that point you're you, you do feel fairly helpless. So every time I got a rejection, three more query letters went out. Um, and I think the other thing that really, really helped me was surrounding myself with other writers and being involved with critique partners because we all have our ups and downs and it's good to have someone who understands what you're going through to be there to bolster you and for you to bolster them when they're going through the process. Great. And are you working on a new novel now? I am. I'm working on a novel set in the 1920s, um, another another time of big change in, in our country. And it, uh, its main character is a teenage teenager who is an orphan of German immigrants. And he's being, he's not being raised, he's actually living with another family and he's accused of a crime. And when he leaves, because he realizes the prejudice that's already set against him, he leaves. And he hooks up with uh, a World War One veteran pilot and a debutante who's basically running away from her life. Um, and they join forces and do a barnstorming act through through the country. So it's going to be another little peek at a, a volatile time in our history where we can view it through the eyes of a younger narrator and and learn about the world as they do. Great. So you said you're a big reader. Do you still have a chance to read? Not as much as I used to and not as much as I want to, but yes, I do read every chance I get. Um, who are some of the writers or books that you've read in the past year or two that, that really that you really liked and that you might mention or recommend? Oh, well, I, right now I'm reading uh, Robert Gulrich, um, Heading Out to Wonderful. Um, my favorite book of all time ever was Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry because I've never seen anybody craft characters like that. Um, now I'm drawing a blank on some other things, but, you know, <laughs> um, I, I do always have a book in pros, progress. It's just a matter of how much time, you know, it may be only be a page a night, but sure, I, I like sure. to keep after it. Sure. So, so where can people find you online if they're interested in learning more? They can find me at my website, which is www.susancrandall, S-U-S-A-N-C-R-A-N-D-A-L-L, dot net. And Great. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. Great. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Well, Great. again, again, we've been speaking with Susan Crandall, author of the new novel, Whistling Past the Graveyard, which is available in bookstores now. So definitely grab a copy. Susan, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.